Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily. Manchester City march on. They were given a little bit of a wobble by Wolves, but in the end, no problem for Pep. That's now 21 wins in a row for City as their grip on the Premier League title strengthens. Manchester United, their closest challengers, although 15 points back in second place, it would take something remarkable to catch their noisy neighbours. They look to add to their brilliant Premier League away record tonight against Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park. Former United skipper Roy Keane had plenty to say at the weekend, but it was Burnley who were in his line of fire. Keane reckons he could play in the Burnley team at the moment and Sean Dyche didn't really disagree. The Clarets' latest test comes against Olympic Leicester, who have been decimated by injuries this season. Injury is also the reason Jack Grealish won't be involved for Aston Villa tonight as they play Sheffield United. Blades boss Chris Wilder says Grealish is the best player in England right now. Is he right? All of tonight's top flight action previewed, as well as answering the questions you've sent in to us via social media, on today's episode of Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast with a new show every single day of the season. Hit subscribe now and you won't ever miss one. I'm Niall McCorn and alongside me on the show today, we've got Ian Brannan. Hello, Ian. Hello. And we've also got Callum Tyler as well. How are you doing, Callum? Good, thanks. How's it going? Yeah, I'm good. Can I just say that Brannan and Tyler sounds like a late <laughs> 90s police drama of some sort. Uh, <laughs> get, get to the car. Like they're, uh, they're mavericks, but they get their job done. <laughs> yeah. Those pencil pushers down at City Hall. Sometimes yeah, they... Which one of you's got the moustache? Yeah, sometimes <laughs> might drive 70 in a 60 area. You know, that kind of thing. Get the blues and twos on. Um, before we get stuck into the show, recently we've requested that you leave us some reviews, um, you guys that listen to the podcast. And since we've said that, we've had absolutely loads come into us here at Football Social Daily. So thank you so much for those reviews. We really do appreciate them. And keep them coming in because... We do love to hear your thoughts on the show, whether you love us or you hate us. It's always great reading what you have to say. But if you leave a five-star review, you are infinitely more likely to get yours read out on the show, even if it is actually slagging us off. Um, We've got a review here. There's no name on it. At least we couldn't find a name, but it's a nice review. It says, amazing podcast, five-star review for Football Social Daily. So thank you very much. Uh, This person says, absolutely love the podcast. I've been listening since last January and haven't missed an episode in that time, it's a great way to stay up to date on everything. Living in the States, it's hard to find good Premier League content, so thank you. Although as a Liverpool fan, I have to say I wish United and City fans didn't end up reviewing our games. A less biased perspective would be nice, especially lately. Please call Steve in and give him a minute or two to weigh in, but it is a podcast for the whole league, so I get it cheers thank you very much for your five-star review you'll be pleased to know um well you would have known by now if you listen to every show that steve did cover off the monday game the liverpool game um (laughs) it's a bit painful to be a liverpool fan at the moment um so yeah appreciate your concerns but appreciate even more the fact that you listen every single day i know there's loads of you out there that do that and we really appreciate it so as you say if you haven't already and this is your first time listening to the podcast why not leave us a review let us know what you think and hit subscribe and that way you won't miss another episode of the show again we are the only premier League podcast with a brand new show every single day of the season and with that out the way there's loads of Premier League content to discuss on today's podcast no less the action at the Etihad Stadium last night where Manchester City continued their fine run of form by beating Wolverhampton Wanderers by four goals to one I mean inevitable is the word that's been going around on social media Callum about your side's performance Manchester City about how they always look like they're going to win they do look imperious still even though they scored four eventually 
there were some concerns at the midway point of the game when Wolves equalised that perhaps City were a little bit too wasteful in front of goal. There's so many positives to take out of Manchester City and how they're playing right now. But if there was one concern that Pep Guardiola might have had last night, would it be that? The fact that they maybe missed a few too many chances yesterday? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing to say is, you know, as you started that point, we're kind of looking at the champions elect here. Um, 15 points clear, 21st straight win. Um, so it does feel slightly odd to criticise any part of that of that team. Um, I rewatched the highlights this morning and um, you, there actually there were quite a lot of chances that, that we didn't put away. Um, Raheem missed, I think, three Kevin De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva also had had chances that didn't go in, um, but actually most of those were either I think really good saves by Rui Patricio who had a, an excellent game even though he conceded four in the mm. end, um, or they were you know they were the kind of goals that Man City players create um, that that are kind of you know they're a back heel flick in the box or they're a curled strike from twenty five yards they were actually pretty hard chances um, when it when it came to the goals you know carved them open, scored the kind of classic Man City tap-ins, to be fair. But I, I, I wouldn't be too worried. Um, I think last night was a testament to Man City's fitness. Uh, the fact that we've got more players mm. fit, we've stayed relatively injury-free, fingers crossed. Um, and yeah, that, that ability to, you know, even when we conceded the equaliser, to go again and, and win the game in sort of the final 15 minutes um, was was a real testament, I think, to, to fitness possibly more than anything. Yeah, what I will say is you're absolutely right about Sterling. Um, the movement and the, just the non-stop tenacity yeah. from him last night was really, really impressive. And that's the thing with Raheem Sterling. Sometimes he goes just off the boil slightly for a little bit and then he, he pops up with performances like that and you think, well, this is the sort of player that gets you really excited particularly uh, for me as an England fan looking at that yep. uh, heading into the Euros and seeing Sterling in fine form um, but as you say absolutely not really too much to criticise from a Manchester City perspective lots to praise in the 4-1 victory but presuming they were a little bit wasteful in front of goal um, and it wasn't so much for the goalkeeper performing well and, uh, and you know those half chances Ian They'll be hoping, Man City, that that isn't the case in the later stages of the Champions League. Because as Callum rightly says, I think now we're all resigned to the fact that Manchester City will be Premier League champions. And rightly so. So I think the Champions League as well is going to be a big focus for Pep Guardiola. Inevitably, they're going to come up against better teams than Wolverhampton Wanderers in the Champions League. There's no two ways about that. They're more likely to get punished for missing their chances. Um, As we saw Cody score to make it 1-1 last night and those chances went a-begging, um, it could be more painful for them if this was a Champions League game against tougher opponents. Sure, yeah, they're going to face better opposition than uh, than Wolves. I mean, Wolves have been on a, a, a decent run, but, you know, they're not... Um they're not one of European football's great forces at the moment, are they? You know, it's not like going to be facing uh, Bayern Munich or Atletico or, or, or whatever. They, they are going to be um, much tougher opposition, depending mm-hmm. on who they face. And of course, as they go through the the latter stages of the Champions League, you are they are going to be tougher games because everybody is good. You know, you've got no uh, sides that have just happened to get in there or. or mm. have happen to be a, a champion of a, a small nation it's all going to be strong powerful teams but that said looking at the performance of Man City last night who you know had a lot of shots on goal I mean I, I, I would just mention there that they missed quite a few of them but similarly they could easily on another day have gone in it's not like that they were they were they were just a little bit unlucky really um so they are creating the chances and I think as well they had another gear to go through yet I think they weren't under pressure they weren't under the yeah. cosh they weren't fighting for their lives in the game it was um, not not really a regulation win they had to sort of up their game slightly in the second half and maybe that's an indication of 
of what they've got in the in the tank. But I think if if they were mm. if they were up against it, I think Man City have got more, and it's going to be interesting. Of course, this weekend, fascinating match that possibly could really you know certainly um put one hand on the uh, on on the title already i think if man city were to 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 have a great performance against man united um yeah and and see how they are against a, a top team like that and i think we'll have the answer in a week from now yeah win 201 for pep guardiola in his manchester city career in all competitions no manager of a top flight english side or premier league side sorry has won uh, as many games in as quick a time no one's got to 200 wins quicker than Pep wow. um, so absolutely have to agree with uh, with everything that's been said in terms of the, the waxing lyrical about him and Manchester City this season 100% I saw one supporter of Manchester United actually Callum say that City are by far and away the best team in England this season which I think is true but it's been a poor Premier League this year the quality the standard has been poor is that unfair on Manchester City? Because even if you take all of the, you know, the fact that uh, the narrative that other sides have been poor out of it, they're still a phenomenal football team. I mean, first of all, yes, it has been um, a poor league this season. But at the same time, you can, well, it's the old cliche is that you can only beat what's in front of you. But I think if you then look at the reasons why it's been a poor season, the lack of fans, the uncertainty because of, you know, COVID and the pandemic, the uh compressed schedule the injuries all the reasons why you know players might not be up for it or might be struggling or you know teams being a bit unpredictable all of those things apply to Manchester City as well and you know yes they are cushioned by having such a deep squad but uh, there's a lot of other deep squads in that league that haven't haven't performed to anywhere near the same level so I think it's um I think this is a season where the league is won less by swashbuck buckling football although there is obviously some of that on display and more by you know careful planning the sort of training and preparation and recovery that they do sort of the stuff that happens more behind the scenes um how they keep players safe how they keep players you know not infected by covid how they keep them motivated um and i think you know obviously all that stuff's important every season but i think this season is the year where that really makes a difference and i think it's probably a testament to the resources man city have kind of actually out with the the first team squad you know the everything at the etihad campus all the staff we mentioned pep there you know this is very much a club in his image and he's meticulous in how he plans everything to the last detail um and i think that's been the difference maker it's kind of not there's not one big kind of sexy reason why why this all went well there's there's just kind of probably lots of small things that they've done that, that other teams haven't done so well. There'll be lots of questions as well about the way that Man City are bankrolled is inevitably there will be every time they win a trophy mm. of any sorts. Um, is that annoying for you as a City fan? Are you starting to get to the end of your tether with it? Because it seems that regardless of how good the football side of things is and how good Pep is as a manager and how good some of these players are playing, you're always going to get those people that say, yeah, well, you bought the league or you've been sports washed or whatnot. So that must be annoying as a City fan. I don't know how how close to the end of your wick you are with it. <laughs> um, so the, the two things there, the sports washing and the buying the league, for me, they're slightly different things. So um, the buying the league one is the one that, that has less weight, I think, as an argument because... Um, all if you look back through previous winners of the Premier League, all the years that United were winning it, even back in the eighties, the year that Liverpool were winning it, Chelsea's yeah. dominance. We use this example of Blackburn as well in the nineties, exactly. where they had loads of exactly. Money, so. so they they bought that title in ninety five or whenever it was. So I don't think I think buying the league is you know generally the bigger clubs have more resources, generally the bigger clubs win. But equally, there's a lot of very rich teams in this league that haven't haven't done anywhere near the same as Man City have. So, you know, um, it's it's what you do with the money, how you spend it, how you motivate the players, all that stuff. The second part of that question, you know, could probably fill 
10 podcasts in terms of like the sports washing and I think it's yeah. um it's a difficult one you know I, I think absolutely the club should be the club's owners sorry should be under scrutiny they bought the club to raise their profile with that comes the exposure of you know things that maybe they don't want people to know about and I think um I'm personally able to compartmentalize it a wee bit and go well I support the team I supported them before the shake rolled into town. Mm. I, I also can appreciate both, you know, the great footballers and the way the club is run at the moment. That doesn't mean that I condone everything that the regime might do back in their own country. But I think if there's one good thing about, you know, them buying Man City is that it has it has cast a spotlight on that. And I, that's yeah. but it's probably more for other people to to dig into. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that we've discussed this on Football Social Daily in the past, particularly around the time when uh, the Saudi Arabians were interested in buying Newcastle United. Um, We've had some Newcastle fans on the programme just saying that, you know, they're not particularly worried about it because, you know, they support Newcastle and they supported Newcastle long before new ownership came in. And, you know, it's it's unfair for them to be sort of moral sentinels for for goings on outside of their control which i think is a a very fair comment to make uh from a wolves perspective they've they've also been um enjoying the fruits of new ownership since the the chinese went in there and bought the club um a few years ago ian as you say they're in good form Uh, that run was put to an end no shame in losing to city obviously connor cody with their goal now we discussed england center backs for the euros on yesterday's podcast particularly talking about michael Keane, who played well for everton in their victory over southampton connor cody's another name who's um kind of dipped his toe into the england water recently he's not in the latest england camp uh for the uh games coming up at the end of this month do you think he is high up on gareth southgate's list of potential center backs for the euros not sure he's um he's probably high up the list um but he's certainly on the radar and he's 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 having a a good time at the moment at Wolves. By the way, do you know that uh, you know like I like a stat. This is a good one, right? Connor Cody, that was his first ever Premier League goal last night. Not only that, that was his actual first shot in the Premier League on target last night as well. Wow. <laughs> 100% you, there record. You go, 100% record. So yeah, he's lethal in front of goal when he gets a chance. Uh, you could say, but um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I suppose for Gareth Southgate, is he's got um, quite a few centre backs to go at, um, and you know, at least uh, one or two of them are in the Man City team last night as well. So I think he's he's sort of he's he's good enough. He's good enough, but there's a lot of competition and a lot of experience competition. If you know what I mean, and I think that probably now is maybe not the time, but. I think I can see him getting involved in the England squad because inevitably players move move on further down the the line, don't they? And I think for for now probably is a bit soon, but I think he's he's got he's still got chance definitely. Mm. Um, I really like yeah. him. Well, he's only got three England caps, and actually, you talk about the fact he's only scored two league goals for Wolves in over two hundred appearances. The second of which coming last night. He's already scored a goal for England in just three caps. Has he? So um, he has, yeah, he has. He scored for England. Uh, I think it was a friendly. I can't remember. Um, But yeah, big beaming smile on his face. I really like him for his leadership qualities just as much as his defending, actually, Ian. I feel like he's got a real spirit about him, which he can kind of G up the players around him. And I guess in international football, you need more than one of those in your camp to try and, you know, keep the spirits high, particularly when it's quite cutthroat if you lose, you're out sort of thing. Yeah, I'm just looking. He's actually older than I thought he was. Um, I thought he was, um, you know, much younger than... He's 28, um, just last week. So... um, He's yeah. I thought I thought he would. Um, I thought he was slightly younger than than he is. I must say. But yeah, defenders have 
still got, you know, he's got another probably 10 years or so left in his career if he keeps himself fit. But yeah, he's kind of seems to be a calming influence. Doesn't seem to be a player that sort of loses his rag very often or get wound up. And I think from that point of view, if you're in a game and you're wanting to bring on someone to sort of just shore things up and, and see things out, he's probably a probably a decent shout for that. He also he speaks very well. Um, I mean, he he got a bit he got a bit kind of defensive in his interview after the game last night about whether or not they were scared of Man City, and he said, "Oh, you you're never scared going out on a football pitch." Um, and I tweeted that that was the most defensive he had been all, all evening. Hey. But um, <laughs> uh, but actually, I think you know, um, with a bit of perspective, that's probably the kind of total assurance and, and confidence that you need in the leader. And I, I think really he suffers from not playing at a traditional top six team. If he was if he was at Chelsea or Tottenham or United, he would he would be in there. Um I don't know if he gets in above above stones at the moment. Um but yeah he's definitely like I, I mean I think England are spoiled for choice. Yeah, it's a good point about the the playing for Wolves as well. And and, and you're right, I think <clears throat> if he was playing for Man United regularly or Tottenham or Chelsea or Man City, yeah, he would he would probably be a straight in there. But I think that's that's an important thing. We've talked about that before in terms of players who are not getting experience to go away to other teams to to get some first team experience. But I think it's the quality of that as well when it when it comes to it. If you're a regular in a a championship team, you you know if he was playing regularly for Liverpool, for example, he'd be um, probably um, higher up the pecking order in some way. Yeah, I said yesterday. I actually think centre back is England's weakest area heading into the Euros um, and a couple of people have really disagreed with me on that I just uh, especially with the form that Stones is in um, I can understand uh, why people would disagree with me there but heading into the Euros I'm still not convinced that Gareth Southgate knows the centre-back partnership he wants particularly in the absence of Joe Gomez at mm. the moment due to injury who I think probably would have walked into that Euros side had he been fit so Interesting um, things to look out for in terms of the England squad. Uh, the next game is uh, the end of the month against San Marino. So I'm not sure that's going to give us too many clues about actually who's going to go to the Euros. But still, Manchester City 4, Wolverhampton Wanderers 1 last night at the Etihad. They are 15 points clear at the top of the Premier League table, albeit having played a game more than their rivals from across the city, Manchester United who are in action tonight at Selhurst Park. They take on Crystal Palace, 8.15pm kickoff. United look like they could have Edinson Cavani back, Callum. Do you think he's had the desired impact at Old Trafford so far? So I, I had to check this out um, and just kind of look at his stats. He's got six goals in 17 games. Um, so what's that, almost one in three? And uh, slightly more than one in three. And I think, you know, for a 34-year-old who struggled with his fitness, he was when he was signed, you know, he had COVID. You don't know what necessarily the long-term effects of that are on him. Um, I think he probably has had had the effect that they would have, have wanted. He's a he's a different option. He's not a player in the same mold um, as like Rashford and and Greenwood and Martial. He's he's a different kind of problem for defenders to face. Um, I think he gives them more depth and attack, and I think he you know he, he gives defenders something else to think about. He's got a touch for me of the of the Henrik Larsons, if we remember when he was at. Um, Manchester mm-hmm. United and, and sort of I wouldn't be surprised if if he stays at United for another year or, or just even in the rest of this year if whilst he might not you know set the league alight with his goal scoring I think he could pop up with some very important goals given his um given his experience uh, the head on that shoulders and, and the, the difference in how he plays compared to how the, the younger quicker players uh, would play do you think that that experience of playing 
for PSG around top quality players can only be a benefit to some of the other forwards in Manchester United's ranks as well because Mason Greenwood's even spoken about how he's learned a lot off Cavani in the six months that Cavani's been at the club even though you know Cavani's not been a sharpshooter um, it's interesting that that's kind of been the narrative coming out from the club that Cavani's almost there not so much to kind of offer that secondary option as you say with a little bit more physicality through the middle but also an opportunity for some of the younger strikers like Greenwood to, to learn off someone experienced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not like Greenwood hasn't got you know a, a few other role models in that United setup. The manager being one of them, um, but it, it definitely gives him. I feel like Cavani, uh, f- until he came here. In fact, well, even now, I think he's a little bit underappreciated in this country because we we hadn't really seen him play. But mm. you know, he 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 was so good for Uruguay at you know various World Cups and things, and he's he's dominated on the continent wherever he's played in Italy and France, um, and I think you know. For any for any young player, for any any young person developing, I think to have a a diversity of, of kind of ideas um, and views and experiences from on which you can kind of draw um, can only be helpful. So yeah, I, I can completely imagine the the conversations that they're having Cavani mm. and Greenwood, um, and I'm I'm sure it's making a big difference. I'm not sure whether Cavani will start tonight, but he's certainly back in contention after missing the last four games due to injury for Manchester United. As for their opponents, Crystal Palace. 13 players, Ian, out of contract in the summer. It's a remarkable amount of contracts to sort out or not sort out, depending on which direction Palace want to take. I mean, regardless, some of those players are definitely going to leave. So that's a pretty big rebuild for Roy Hodgson or whoever's next in through the doors of Selhurst Park to take over that manager's job if Hodgson doesn't stick around. So what's the thinking, do you think, from Palace, particularly in the current climate that we find ourselves in? Sensible or stupid? I don't know. I've just been thinking about this. Um, I mean, Roy Hodgson himself is is not um, committed to a contract beyond the, the end of the season currently either. So as you say, I mean, he's no spring chicken, so maybe he's thinking of uh, toddling off and doing something else. We don't know. Um, let's say Roy Hodgson does stay, just because that's where we are, we are at the moment. I think they've actually got 11 players who are definitely completely out of contract. There's a couple that are uh, of those 13 that I think have got offers on the table. I'm not sure exactly which two, but even still, I'm trying to think of the psychology of it, right? And I, and I liken this in in some sort of remote way to uh, what I know, and and that's when I've been a radio presenter, and you have a radio, you know, you have a, a station full of people who are on contracts, and some of those contracts are long, some of them are short, and I think if you know that your contract is that you're doing a good job, and you know that your contract is likely to get renewed, then you're probably quite chilled about it. And you know that it's all fine. We talked about Marcelo Bielsa last week. You know, his contract, you know, it's it's bubbling along and people are saying, well, he hasn't signed one. His contract runs out in the season. He's like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's all right. It'll be fine. Okay. Um, but I think there's a point where they're now using it as a, a, a cattle prod almost to sort of say, look, if you don't do your job well, if you um, don't get us out of trouble, then you won't be getting a contract renewed. And I think maybe they're also protecting themselves because they're not 100% safe from the drop. And maybe they don't want to tie themselves into ridiculous, long, expensive contracts with a bunch of players who they can't then afford if they were to drop in the championship. It'd be interesting to see what happens if they get secure. Do you know what I mean? And then they can maybe look at the contracts then knowing that they're going to be in the Premier League next year. Maybe it's that. Fair enough. All right, you don't want to go and bust, especially when you've got no fans coming through the door. Sorry, uh, Palace have the they also have the oldest squad in the Premier League. So I think I think there's a 
there's a sort of generational gap that's sort of growing there and yeah. you know they're a, they're a team that have um, produced some excellent young players down the years Victor Moses Wambasaka uh, Wilfred Zaha of course um, but you, you just would you know look at the squad and beyond maybe like Eze there doesn't seem to be that next generation coming through so I think that there could be a bit of a, a bit of a gap there yeah definitely in terms of a rebuild I mean, the wages, you've just kind of touched upon it there, Ian. The wages that Crystal Palace pay, I think they're definitely, well, comfortably in the top 10 of Premier League teams. And for a club the size of Crystal Palace, uh, I know that they're based in London, which is always a bit of a benefit. But in terms of the size of the club and the prestige of the club, for them to be paying some of the wages that they're paying, um, it's quite eye-watering. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm just looking at some of the... um... Uh, value of the contracts that they've got average salary Zaha 6.7 million uh, Sacco 5.2 million Scott Dan 3.1 Connor Wickham 3.1 million uh, Schlupp 2.9 so th- they've got they've got only a couple of you know Sacco and Zaha are the, the highest earners in the team I think um, Tomkins uh, no, sorry, Benteke is uh, is is uh, quite um, expensive as well. But they've got the rest of the body of the team have got quite a high average salary, if you know what I mean. So they're, they're all in two or three million um, through their contracts between them. So it's um, it, it is an expensive squad, and it's certainly not a squad that you can carry into the championship if you got relegated. And I know that they're probably not likely to go down now. I don't think. But it's especially when you've got no fans coming in, which which you know they haven't at the moment. There's no guarantee that that's going to be the case next season as it stands. Um, you you know, it, I suppose protecting yourself from liquidation is uh, is the first aim, even if you're a Premier League team. You know, the money only goes so far, and if you're forking out that all the time, then it's probably not going to stretch a great deal of length over the mm. uh, over the period of those contracts. Yeah, well like you say, it's not particularly sustainable for a club of Crystal Palace's size and being a Portsmouth fan, I know all about that, overspending on players in the Premier League. Um, some of the charts and sort of data that I've seen, I need to caveat this with saying we have no idea how accurate this is. These are all just estimations and predictions. But the estimated, uh, according to some data reports, Crystal Palace wage bill is £85 million per season, which puts them seventh, which means the big six of United City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal and Spurs are the only teams to outspend Crystal Palace in terms of wages, according to this report here that I've got in front of me, which means Palace is spending more on players than Everton, Leicester, West Ham, Newcastle, Villa, um, and you can keep going down through the rest of the Premier League. So yeah, quite a remarkable situation they've got there with 13 players out of contract. Um, What's also remarkable is Manchester United's away form this season. Mm. Any particular reason for that, do you think, Callum? I mean, I think a lot of people will point to the absence of fans in stadiums and, you know, perhaps a lack of atmosphere, but there must be more to it than that because it's a good record. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think the, the again, doing a bit of research into this because uh, I don't watch United week in, week out, um, they, they actually start a very different team away from home than they do at home. So um, at home... Ole tends to put out is you know five most attacking players and just kind of go for it in that kind of classic United style, um, just dominate the game, take the game to the opposition, all that stuff that we kind of know that team for doing. When he's away from home, um, he, he does that double pivot thing with McTominay and Fred, and then he's got kind of uh, Fernandez and it's usually Rashford and Greenwood with their pace, and you know that is a team that is excellent on the counter attack. So I think he's actually 
you know, he rotates a lot. It makes them unpredictable when they go to other places. But I think I think he's actually got a better strategy when he's playing away from home than when he's at home. Now, you would have to question why he does that, given that home advantage isn't a thing uh, this year at all. Um, for me, it, it seems, you know, maybe if we're being a bit unkind to Ollie, that's him sort of... Uh, Doing that—that's the kind of united way that they've always played. You know, we we batter teams at home and we and we play smart and counter-attacking football away. Um, but it, you know, it seems to be working, and, and you just wonder maybe he should treat every game like an away game. <laughs> well, they are away tonight. Selhurst Park, the venue. Crystal Palace, the opposition. Eight fifteen p.m. kickoff for Manchester United this evening. Time for a quick break here on Football Social Daily. Still two more Premier League fixtures to talk about that take place tonight. We'll do it next after this. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sports Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Now, if you haven't heard already, Sports Social has launched a brand new podcast network, the UK's only dedicated sports podcast network. So if you create podcasts and you want to grow your sports podcasts, you can do so for absolutely zero hosting fees. Come and get involved. Sport-social.co.uk is the website. You can find more information there and come and join our roster of podcasts, including us here at Football Social Daily. And of course, Ian Brannan's Humans of Speedway podcast, uh, which is also part of the Sport Social yeah, Stable. Baby. So go and check it out. Go and check it out. Of course, um, the website again, sport-social.co.uk. As I say, zero hosting fees. It's worth checking it out. Time to talk Burnley against Leicester now, 6pm kickoff. And Leicester's injuries, Ian, they continue to build up and build up. Brendan Rodgers somewhat sacrificed the Europa League to secure a top four finish this season. They were knocked out by Slavia Prague last week. Do you think they can hold on to the top four? Because Madison's the latest name to be injured and Harvey Barnes as well, also now on the sidelines. He's going to need surgery. Surely it's going to start catching up with Leicester soon. Or do you think they can cling on to the top four? Yeah, they've got um, eight key injuries to their squad, which is uh, not ideal in anybody's uh, book. Um can they cling on to the top four? Um, well, they've they've got as good a chance as anybody, and I think that you know the, the fact that they've had a good season up to now um, has certainly been required because it's going to be a tough end to the season for them. Um, they're currently on forty nine points, the same amount of matches played as as Man United, uh, who are just one point in front. So they've got a decent cushion at the minute, but. Chelsea seem to be getting their act together, don't they? And I think Chelsea are their biggest, uh, perhaps their biggest threat. And then will Liverpool um, come to uh, come to the party late doors? Um, I don't know. Maybe for a top four, I think they might just have enough. I think they could finish fourth. I think mm. clinging on, to th- if it was a top three, I would probably be saying that, that no, I think Chelsea will come in and, and get to that, that third um, place by the end of the season, the way they're going. Um, but a top four, it's going to be between what them and West Ham. Liverpool is a bit of an outside runner. Yeah, possibly. I think. Mm. Yeah, decent. Chance. I think it's a really, really hard one to call because, particularly considering the Europa League um, was not thrown by Brendan Rodgers, I don't think that's fair. But certainly, the priority is the Premier League. After they missed out narrowly last season and finished fifth, they're really keen to cling on to fourth. Yeah. And they would have been hoping, Callum, that Harvey Barnes would have stayed fit. Hasn't been the case. He's going to be out for a while now. Needs surgery on an injury. I mean, that's a big blow to them. And we say this every time one of their key players gets injured. But he was been he had been playing so well before the knock. 
he really was. He really was. He was uh, becoming a bit of an outside bet for that England team. Um, not that England needed another sort of talented attacking midfielder, but um, he, yeah, he just had so much drive and, and determination and was really making stuff happen for Leicester. And that is a huge blow. Um, I, I really hope they can hold on um, because they, they deserve to finish top four this season, given how they've performed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Burnley, they also need a little bit of improvement. They've also got their fair share of injuries, although nowhere near as many as Leicester. Uh, the Burnley gaffer, Sean Dyche, He's been uh, quite <laughs> fruitful in his uh, press conferences over the last couple of weeks. Um, he was talking about selling Nick Pope for two pints of lager and a packet of crisps. He was also talking about looky-likeys a few weeks ago. Um, now he was talking about the criticism levelled at him by Sky Sports pundit Roy Keane at the weekend. Keane said that he could play in the Burnley side. And Sean Dyche replied, well, Roy Keane was a pretty good player, to be fair, so he's probably right. Interesting that Sean Dyche has taken that criticism on the chin because Clarets fans have actually been invited by the new owners, Ian, to do a survey on what they want for the club going forward. And the majority of Burnley fans have suggested they want more investment into the playing squad. How hard do you think that's going to be for Sean Dyche? How hard do you think that's going to be for Burnley to attract those bigger and better names to the club? Is it simply a case of them saying, here you go, here's more cash, here's a better deal, come and play for us in the Premier League? Or does it run a bit deeper than that? The thing with Burnley is that it's Burnley. You know, it's you know, if you go to a player and you say we're Manchester United, we're Manchester City, we are Arsenal, we are Barcelona, we're Real Madrid, you've done the sell, right? You, you don't need to say anything else, really. Obviously, then the contract negotiations begin and the money uh, clearly is going to be quite high. To go to a player who maybe is not familiar with with English football, with England in general, they probably don't know off the top of their head where Burnley is. There's probably a lot of people in this country who don't know where <laughs> Burnley is, to be honest. Right? So you've got that sell, first of all. Oh, it's a very historic market town. Some of our famous people who are born here are people like Fred Dibner. You know, <laughs> things like that. It's a hard sell to uh, to somebody who's not familiar with it. So you've got that. Then it comes down to money. And do you want a team full, firstly, of mercenaries who are there just for the cash, who don't care about the club, who as soon as something better comes along, they'll be out of there like a rat up a drain pipe? Do you want that? Because that's the that's the other thing when you go pumping cash in. We've just been talking about Crystal Palace, about how much money they've invested, right? They've they've paid a fortune. Have they got the success to show for it? Not really. They're not challenging for Europe. They're not challenging for the Champions League. You know, they're not in any of those sort of competitions. So does money get you everywhere? No, it doesn't. And the other thing with investing all your cash in uh, players is that they can lose their value really quickly. They get injured. You can't do anything with them. They just have a, you know, you sign them for a fortune and they don't really deliver the goods for whatever reason. Again, you're on a loser. There are many teams who have invested a lot of money in players and that money's just gone. It's, it's, you've got nothing to show for it in years from now if you don't win stuff with those players. What they'd be better doing is if they're going to invest a stack of money in something, invest it in a decent academy and a decent sort of production line of getting players in young, nurturing them, making them into the stars of tomorrow, hopefully benefiting from that in your own team. And if you don't benefit in your own team, maybe you can sell them for a stack of cash to somebody just down the road. I think it's really interesting how geography plays into all of this because I would argue that Burnley are historically and traditionally a bigger and better club than Brighton and Hove Albion. 
but Brighton have got uh, great academy facilities, brand new stadium, sunny south coast, an hour train from London. Burnley, ugh, again, it's interesting. How are you attracting players from overseas to come and play for Burnley? You know, <laughs> if I, if I can... Preston's just up the road, lads. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's not quite the same, is it? If uh, if I could just comment, um, I think what kind of Ian is touching on there is, is something that you see happen to a lot of clubs, which is they sort of spend five, I think six years now, Burnley have been in the Premier League. And it gets to the point where you've got to question kind of what what is the club for? Um, and that sounds quite harsh, but I think it's interesting that they've asked the fans, like, what do you want to see? Because, you know, I, I, I you see a lot of clubs, Stoke are always the one that I come back to where they sort of were a consistent Premier League team, but that stopped being satisfying enough as a goal in itself. So they overspent, they got in loads of players that had won the Champions League. There's something like, there was something like 12 Champions League in, leagues in that Stoke squad for a while, the season that they went down. Mm. Um, and and it, it it's this kind of be careful what you wish for thing, but it's also, it must be very difficult to be a mid-table Premier League team, team that's finishing 15th, the highest Burnley have ever finished is 7th, to sort of go, if you, do, if you don't especially have like a philosophy like Brighton do, um, in terms of we, we breed you know young players and we play attacking football, that's what Brighton are for. Um, so it's kind of a bit more you know of, of something for the fans to latch onto. Newcastle really struggle with what they're for as well, um, and and what they kind of believe in and what the club represents. And I think mm. I think Burnley have, have kind of fit into that classic mould. I know we're about to talk about Sheffield United, but I've got a few Sheffield United friends um, who would actually you know rather not stay in the Premier League quite this long if they can't afford to compete at the top end um, and just have you know the yo-yo years. But every second season, you you absolutely storm the Championship. Yeah, I think it's interesting we've discussed Crystal Palace, Burnley and now we're about to talk about Sheffield United, three clubs who I think could probably all feel similar in terms of what do they want, what are their aspirations, what are their ambitions and stuff like that. So yeah, Burnley take on Leicester tonight at 6pm. The other game that kicks off at the same time, Sheffield United against Aston Villa. Now, the Blades are going down. I don't think there's two questions, two ways about that. They are definitely being relegated this season. But when he was asked whether he will be in charge of the club next season, manager Chris Wilder said, I don't know. Conversations about the short, medium and long term that need to be happening aren't happening at the moment. I really like Chris Wilder. He's been successful everywhere he's gone. He was refused money to spend in January by the club's Saudi owner. When he was then asked, Ian, if he wants to be the manager next season, it was a resounding yes. Now, you know Chris Wilder. You've worked with him before. That probably doesn't surprise you that he is quite bullish and quite resilient and he wants to carry on because he absolutely loves that club to the core, doesn't he? Yeah, and and as we've mentioned, I think, in the past that there's not really been um, a bad feeling, I don't think, about anything that's been going on at Sheffield United. The players have been, as far as we know, reasonably um, content and enthusiastic to work with him and, and him to work with them. There's not really been any signs of any um, you know dis- disquiet within the club. Uh, which you might expect for a team at the bottom. Maybe it might be different if if the ground was full of fans. You know, we mentioned this before about how some managers are maybe getting an easy ride because they're not getting booed every week. Maybe that would have um, forced the hand one way or another. We don't know, but I think Chris Wilder. You know, he's a Blades legend. He's a he's a Sheffield United fan uh, through and through himself. Um, he's not going to throw the towel in. Uh, he's not. I don't think he's the kind of person to do that. Um, he'll stick it out and, and he'll want to turn things around. And he's probably resigned to the fact that, look, all right, we might be going down now, but look, I've done it before. I've got us up. We went in through the, um, they went up. Um, did they go through the playoffs? 
Oh, no, I think they got the autos blades. in the oh, end. No, they got second, mm. didn't they? They got second. Yeah, so, you know, he's done it before. He's one of the few people who've actually um, got, got a team out of, uh, out of the championship. He knows how to do it. They're in a stronger position than they were then. They're a better team than they were then with the benefit of um, the Premier League experience that they've had. So I think if they did go down with parachute payments um, and kept their team together, I think he's probably fairly confident of, of getting them back up there and just taking it on the chin and going, all right, look, we'll have a year out. We'll, we'll come back and we'll just, uh, you know, um, blast through the uh, blast through the championship. That's always the plan, obviously. Uh, easier said than done, but I, I'd, I'd back them because they're a, they're a rough old, rough and ready classic British football team who who will get their way through the championship. They're, they're, they'll they'll get through. Yeah, I'm, and um, I, I like Chris Wilder. I really do. I'm a big fan of his. Oh, he's a great guy. Um, honestly, he's like it's a solid, solid. Yeah, guy. I mean, I really like him, um, and I'd be sad to see if he does leave Sheffield United. It feels almost like. You have to sack your manager when you get relegated from the Premier League. This weird stigma that we have in this country where, oh, they finished bottom, they're terrible, they've got to get rid. I don't feel like that. Um, because if you look at what happened with Norwich, who went down last season, Daniel Farker, he's still their manager. And they're still knocking around at the top end of the championship this season, trying to get back into the Premier League. Yeah. So sometimes the grass isn't always greener. Another thing that Wilder did say in his press conference yesterday Callum was that he thinks Jack Grealish of Aston Villa, who are the Blades' opponents tonight, is the best player in England. What are your thoughts on that? And I guess there's two ways you can take that. The best English player, or in general, the best player in England. I'm going to assume he meant the best English player, because he's not the best yeah. player in England. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Jack Grealish one. Really like Jack Grealish as a player. He's got a kind of very throwback style about him. He's a bit of a character. He's you know he's great in interviews, and he's kind of um, he's, a, he's a bit refreshing in the sense that he sort of doesn't really give two hoots what anyone thinks about what he does, um, kind of on and off the pitch. And I think people really warm to him um, for that reason. In terms of like his talent level, um, I think you know that England squad we sort of mentioned it already is kind of you could basically start eleven tricky sort of midfielders, and you know if. Actually, probably Pep Guardiola is a good option to manage England if that if that would be the case. But when you've got him next to Foden, Mount, Madison, you know Barnes, there's just so so many options, and I, I almost certainly missed out about six there. Um, mm -hmm. Is he better than those players? I think he's probably on a par. The the counter argument to that, though, of course, is that he's doing everything he's doing at Aston Villa. You know, he's not got a Man City squad or the Chelsea squad or the United squad around him helping him um, helping him do things on the pitch, and he he very much is kind of. Villa are almost at times a one-man team especially in terms of how they create chances so yeah it's a tough one it's the old conundrum he's he's probably better than we think he is because he's doing it at Villa but until he's doing it at a big club um, there will always be that leveled against him that he's not doing it at the very highest level yeah I see where you're coming from but they will be without him actually tonight uh, due to injury they have to beat Sheffield United and you'd expect them to wouldn't you particularly if they have an eye on the Europa League or at least Europa League qualification Oh yeah, I think um, I think they've got more than enough to beat Sheffield United. Yeah, well let's uh, wait and see what happens tonight. Sheffield United versus Aston Villa, 6pm kickoff. Right, that's it for tonight's Premier League previews. But we've still got your questions to answer in our AQA section of Football Social Daily. We'll do it next, after this. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. 
Welcome back to the podcast. This is Football Social Daily, the only Premier League podcast with a new episode right throughout the season, every single day of the campaign. So hit subscribe and that way you'll keep bang up to date with everything that's going on and you'll be notified as soon as a new episode is released. Right then, time to answer your questions. It's the AQA section of the podcast, which stands for All Questions Answered. I still think AQA is just an exam board. Uh, and it's given me nightmares about my maths exam when I was a 15-year-old, but still, we'll go with it. Jim started it. We're going to carry on with it throughout the course of the season. Time to get your questions answered uh, with myself, Callum and Ian. We'll start with this one on Instagram from Robert Pethick, who says, how many of the next five Premier Leagues do Manchester City win? <laughs> My guess is three out of four. You're the City fan here, Callum. What do you think of that, Robert's question? Three out of four of the next five Premier Leagues going to Man City. What do you reckon? Uh, can I say five? I mean, I think I think I think that sounds about right. I think um, it's always much harder to defend a title. So if we assume that this one's wrapped up, then we also have to assume that you know United and Liverpool and Chelsea particularly are going to come back much stronger next year. Um, and we've already seen you know how hard it is to defend a title. They've absolutely got the resources to do it. I think. Um, I think. I was going to say this is the start of a dynasty. It's not really. We're kind of we're kind of well into it now. Um, ever since Pep kind of arrived, big questions though. How long is 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 Pep gonna is gonna stick around? How do they manage that transition? Um, now that Arteta is not in there, who do they kind of, you know, put in in line to to take over? And and how do they continue the success? How long does the shake stay interested? Um, there's a lot of questions. How, but mainly how strong the opposition are, and, and you've got to imagine that even despite you know. COVID and the financial situation, they'll reinvest, they'll come back stronger next year. So I'd probably go for four, three, same as question. Wow. Okay. Well, I just, I can't see that happening. (laughs) As good as City are right now, I can't see them winning three or four out of the next five. I can see them winning three. So maybe next season, skip a season, skip a season. But to win four out of five, I mean, that that would involve winning at least three on the spin. Mm. Um or, or two back or or back to back titles twice, so I just can't see it with the way that the Premier League has been, and the way that you know kind of Liverpool um, have tailed off this season. I mean, you think back to the season where Manchester City got ninety eight points, um, they got a hundred before that. Everyone was saying that they were going to dominate for years and years, and they had an off season last season. Liverpool won the title, and now they're back this season. So, you know, I, I can see where you're coming from with that. I just I just find it hard to get to grips with the fact that Chelsea, like you say, aren't going to come back stronger. And Manchester United are only going to improve. And Liverpool surely are going to improve again and get back to where they were. So I don't know. Three out of four titles, it seems a, it seems a hell and, of a and thing And of course, the, uh, the coming force that is West Ham. <laughs> yeah, can't forget the Hammers. Can't forget the Hammers. Uh, next question. This one comes uh, from Lenny underscore Fortnite 12. Also on Instagram. A uh, question for today's AQA: What is the favorite? What is your favorite club badge you have ever seen? Good question from Lenny. Go on, Ian. Uh, have you got a favorite club crest? Yeah, there's there's so there's so many. Obviously, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, one, for, there's one for every club. Oh. Um, the, well, the ones that sort of stick out in my mind, if I if I think of you know great iconic club badges, one that's very rarely changed um ever since it was first made um, many many years ago is uh, the real madrid one you, you as soon as you see it you, you know it's you know exactly who that badge belongs to because some of them you got to look up it's like who's who's whose crest is that i think the one the best ones are the ones that you know instantly bang that is the logo of or the, the crest of uh, of real madrid it's classic it says everything it's got a crown on top of it uh and 
that makes them the kings and that's why they put it on there uh, but yeah, great badge. The other one I like is uh, you see it very rarely actually. Leeds had a had a, a, a crest. I think it was the sixties, seventies, and it's just a simple like like a, a bubble font kind of thing where it's just an L and a U wrapped around it in a circle. It's it's just dead simple, but it's um, you know it's quite trendy. Yeah, for me, I'm going to cop out and say Portsmouth, the club I support, is my favourite club crest, um, obviously, for much for the same reasons that you've just discussed. I think Real Madrid have had the same crest that we see today since the 40s, or at least it hasn't changed much since then. Um, And for us, Portsmouth, we've had an extremely similar crest to the one we've got now ever since inception really so the fact that we've never really dramatically changed our club crest there was a period i think in the 80s um where we changed it for four or five seasons uh, and it did look slightly different and um that's also quite fondly thought of but the you know the eight point star with a half crescent moon on the badge for me um that that's my favorite and i think i don't think it's going to uh, be that's ever going to change let's just say what about you callum oh god i'm gonna have to do the mad left field hipster choice here aren't i um so uh, the Unam Pumas, Pumas, sorry, from Mexico. It's just a massive puma, and they put it really big on the kit. Um, and it's kind of quite a stylized design. Um, but it's it's kind of I got like the kit is just the entire badge. Um, so that's excellent. And then I know that we have quite a lot of American listeners, and I would say that American um, crests are are excellent because you know a lot of them are kind of recent inventions, and, and you know big graphic design agencies do them. My favorite at the moment is probably Forward Madison. Also a great name, um, but the kind of flamingos and the pink and the blue, um, it's, it's excellent. Um, so yeah, those are my totally left field, pure football hipster choices. You can hear me like <laughs> rapidly Googling forward Madison FC, <laughs> see what it looks like. I see what you mean. It is pretty cool. I'll tell you what I don't like the MLS logo. I don't. Oh, I mean, rubbish. you talk about the, you know, the crest in the MLS being good. I don't like the actual MLS badge itself. Um, but yeah, uh, Pumas FC have got the, yeah, like you say, a huge like gold Puma, haven't they, on the front of their <laughs> of their kit. Uh, thanks very much uh, for your question, by the way, Lenny. Really appreciate that. Um, another quick couple of questions before the end of the show. This one comes from Sam Colby underscore thirteen. Which Premier League team is in the most danger of going out in the Europa League in the next round? So then, Ian, three teams still in it. Arsenal, Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur. Who do you think's most at risk of being dumped out of the competition? Um, from those, Arsenal, I think. They're probably the shakiest uh, of, of those clubs. They're, you know, I, I, I just think that they um, are going to be the team that uh, are the next to go out. I don't know off the top of my head, who are the fix? Do we know who they're playing in the next round yet? Yeah, so Arsenal have got Olympiacos, yeah. who knocked them out of the Europa League last season. So there is a little bit of history there. Manchester United have got AC Milan, which will Mm. be a tough test for them. Um, But still, Manchester United, I think, comfortably better than Arsenal at the moment. And uh, Tottenham have got Dinamo Zagreb, Mm. so it would be a serious upset for the Croatian side to to spoil Tottenham's fun. Yeah, Olympiacos are uh, are a handy team on their day. I mean, you know, they say Man United playing AC Milan, that's not going to be easy, especially going to... I think they are playing the games um, in Milan, aren't they? It's not like Germany where they're having to play in neutral venues. I think they're playing in... In Milan, the Serie A is certainly playing at the moment. So, um, so yeah. Um, but I think I'd fancy Man United to do the job back on their patch. But yeah, Arsenal, just a bit of a mixed bag, really, for me. I think. Uh, I think well, obviously any of them could go out, but I think um, yeah. If I was going to put my uh, cat on it, then I would. Uh, I would go for Arsenal. 
won't say house don't want to go that far if i was to put your cat on it i'd also go for arsenal (laughs) (laughs) um callum do you think arsenal are we being too harsh on them i mean dinamo zagreb they aren't going to knock Tottenham out. And if they do, then that would be a huge shock. AC Milan and Manchester United, I suppose Arsenal fans listening to this would be going, well, hang on a sec, surely Manchester United have got the tougher tie, so they're more at, like, more at risk of going out. Um, yeah, I'm going to go for United, just to mix it up, <laughs> and also because it's United. But yeah, um, AC, AC, AC Milan are like top of this uh, Italian league. That is definitely the more difficult tie. Um, Spurs aren't going out because this is the competition, that well, this is European competition, and that's the one thing Josie can do really well at the moment. Um, so yeah, I'm going United. Okay, there we go. Right, final question comes from Danny. Uh, this is a, a long question, but a really interesting one nonetheless. Thanks for your question, Danny. He says, Hi guys, something to discuss on the next podcast. We all want referees to be honest and reputable. So what if we gave them a pay rise? Hear me out before you moan. Give them a pay rise, then you get more refs coming into the game from a grassroots level because the money will be great, but also give them more responsibility with that pay rise. For instance, make them do interviews after the game, mic them up during a game, give them bans or a week's fine for poor performances. Get the FA to treat them like players. If they're like Mike Dean and want to be famous, they can be treated that way. Anyway, I'm sure there'll be good points and bad points to discuss. Have a good week. Hope to hear something about this soon. Well, you're going to hear about it now, Danny. Thanks very much for your question on Instagram. Really interesting question this, Callum, I think. We've discussed referees on the podcast numerous times, particularly in recent weeks with some of the situations and instances that have been taking place. Give them a pay rise, but with that, give them more responsibility. What are your initial takeaways from that? Um, I think, um, and Ian uh, can vouch for this, having worked in radio, I don't think the amount of money you earn is any predictor of how honest and professional you are. And I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that you necessarily, I, like, it, it seems that's always like the easy option. If you just pay them more, you'll get better. Better people will come in. I, I think there's absolutely no evidence of that. Um, no, you get worse people, actually. <laughs> you, well, exactly. You potentially do. You get people doing it potentially for completely the wrong reasons. In terms of giving them more responsibility, I think... I completely understand the um, the desire to have referees speak, whether that's after games or have them mic'd up. I think we need to be very careful how we do that because I think it could actually add to the confusion because mm. what what they will do if they know that they're being basically surveilled by an entire stadium or a, a, an audience of millions on the TV is they will say even less and there will be less communication between the refs and that will result almost certainly in worse decisions. Mm. Um, so I think the what, what he's kind of talking about there in the question is different incentive schemes do we incentivize them with more money do we disincentivize them by you know exposing what they say and i think you've you've got to be first of all you've got to be kind of light touch we've also really got to think about what that does to the psyche of the ref um and i also know having discussed this before we came on that you have the possibly perfect solution to this oh yeah well, i can't remember what i actually said <laughs> <laughs> something about the uh, the referee's report we could release oh, that yeah, ra- rather than have them speak and put them on the on the spot yeah well referees I think they get paid around £100,000 a year at the top level in the Premier League which is still a a great amount of money for you know the normal human being let's just say in the UK Um, but in the professional game when some players are getting paid that or even more than that in one week and some referees are getting paid that in a year there is a disparity there so in terms of giving referees a pay rise I think that that would involve bringing sponsors in to the league and stuff like that in order to facilitate that. But there is definitely a disparity there between what um, referees get paid and what players get paid. In terms of sort of my idea to fix this, instead of going down that rabbit hole of releasing the audio and um, interviews and scrutinising them that way, 
every single game that a referee has, there is an assessor sat in the stands, um, basically marking the referee on his performance. So every referee in the professional game has a referee's assessor who will watch every game. And after the game, they'll sit down and they'll go through the decisions that were made that the referee's assessor thought were correct and incorrect. Um, and I think if that assessor's report was released, um, that would certainly give a, a, a kind of an idea into where referees might be going wrong. And I think that that will also kind of give referees a bit of kick up the backside in terms of, OK, well, I better have a good game here because... Um, if my assessment is going to be released, my assessor's report is going to be released, um, then I, <laughs> I think that I better probably start thinking about how I'm whistling this game. So I think that would be a really interesting solution is, for instance, if those referees' reports were uploaded to the FA website where people can download them and kind of have a look at what a referee's assessor has suggested in terms of an overview of the game and that referee's particular performance. Um, I also think that it kind of uh, alleviates any direct pressure on referees in terms of um, being scrutinised or trying to be tripped up by journalists in post-match interviews. So I think that could be a really interesting route to go down in terms of uh, trying to solve the situation. I've uh, got here how much Premier League pay, uh, uh, how much Premier League referees are paid. And it's interesting because they, they get a salary. So they get a retainer fee um, for their time. So they get paid between 38500 and £42,000 a year based on experience and then they get paid a match fee on top of that and that match fee is £1,150 per match uh, or £600 for a championship game compared with the rest of Europe uh, rest of Europe don't get a retainer it's a very British thing put you on a retainer guy and don't go and refereeing <laughs> any other sports in the meantime will you <laughs> um, Spain €5,200 uh, euros they get per, no £5,200 converted um, in Spain per match £3,150 a match in Germany £3,000 a match in Italy £2,400 in France and £1,000 a match in Portugal and uh, £5,500 for a Champions League game so so if you think it's a it's a 38 game season Mm -hmm. and a referee is doing 38 games a season at a thousand pounds a game give or take you know you've kind of doubled your salary you've doubled your retainer there plus you get money for being a fourth official as well which uh, people seem to forget about. You often yeah. see the same referees cropping up. You get money for being a VAR. If you've got a Champions League game midweek, you get more money for that, as you've just kind of picked up on there. Ian. Yeah, it, it is it is important. I, I know I've just said don't don't like grossly overinflate the salaries, but I suppose it is also very important that being a referee pays enough to live very comfortably, so that you're never, you know, desperate for cash and then potentially compromise yourself in that but way. But even with the retainer, the Premier League referees get a lot less than their Spanish and, and German counterparts, right, even right. with the retainer. Right. So maybe there's a more of a call for, rather than giving necessarily just a call for referees in a Premier League to, to have a pay rise, just for mm-hmm. them to be brought in line with their counterparts mm-hmm. around Europe. Because mm-hmm. they're FIFA referees as well, a lot of them in the, in the Premier League. So they are going around Europe and then they're refereeing the same games in the in the Champions League and they're getting paid five and a half grand going, well, this is all right, isn't it? But then, um, you know, the mm. Spanish referee who referees, uh, you know, the general league games is, is doing the same. He's earning that money just for, for a regular league match. Yeah, I know there'll be issues with language barriers and communications and stuff, but mm. we've got the best players in the Premier League. We've got the best managers in the Premier League. Why don't we try and get the best referees? 
Try and, and encourage some referees from the continent to come over because, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm inclined to suggest that the majority of Europeans speak very, very good English now, um, which is testament to them. I mean, most of the German people I've met speak impeccable English. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, this is an issue which happens during Champions League games as well, where, you know, English speaking clubs um, usually have an English speaking referee to kind of dictate regardless of the opposition that they face. So I think that that might be an angle worth taking if we've got the best managers players uh fans why not get the best referees in as well mm. yeah exactly um and as you say there's no language barrier um there but uh, the other thing as well is you know you mentioned there um lines 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 people um because obviously not all men now <laughs> that's it uh, assistants referees assistants you know some of the pay there and i'm not exactly sure what they get right now but not long ago it was it was certainly you know just a couple hundred quid for, for doing that job mm. and when you're refereeing a premier league match um and, and you know is it that, worth getting death threats on twitter well, yeah exactly being racially oh, abused exactly. on twitter exactly. for 200 quid a game quite exactly so there is this sort of thing that yeah they're refereeing the game but they're in the spotlight people are slagging them off <laughs> weeks mm. weeks and weeks and weeks after the match is actually finished and they say some of this is getting pretty personal sometimes on social media yeah. and stuff and and you and you can see some players who are sat on the bench uh, who are barely contributing anything to the to the whole proceedings? They're, they're getting paid, you know, nigh on what hundred, two hundred thousand pound a week. Mm, yeah, great question, Danny. Thanks so much for your question. Fascinating debate. I'm sure we could talk about this on an entirely different podcast. So thank you very much uh, to everyone for sending in your questions for today's AQA section. You can get us on Instagram at Sports Social Official. Just send us a little DM with your question. You can also find us on Twitter at the Sports Social and on Facebook. Just search for Sports Social and you'll find us there. We'll pop up and just give us a click and a like on that page. But that's it for today's podcast. Thanks, Ian. Thank you, Callum. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Don't forget to hit subscribe and we'll catch you again tomorrow here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Facebook. Search Sport Social.